Welcome to a very special edition of the Week in Review. I'm Dylan Nolan. I'm here with Jennifer Wood. You might notice that Will Folks is not here. Will is enjoying his vacation. However, the news has not taken a vacation this week. It's been a very busy week. I've been in the Lexington County Courthouse covering the Greg Leon trial. Jennifer has been following her investigation of South Carolina probates, probate courts, uh, seemingly till the, to the end of the earth, uh, and has been working on a number of other stories. So we're going to talk to you about some of those. Let's jump right in with Greg Leon, shall we? Yep. So for those of y'all who are unfamiliar with the Greg Leon case, first of all, let me explain a little bit about why a lot of people care about this case. Greg Leon is a restaurateur. Yeah, there's a lot of context here. Greg Leon's a restaurateur. His family, uh, for multiple generations, have operated Mexican restaurants. His dad started running Mexican restaurants in the Atlanta area, uh, I think, like around 40 years ago. Greg moved to South Carolina and in the Midlands successfully at one point operated eight Mexican restaurants, the majority of which being San Jose. As Will and I said last week, if you live in the Midlands, you definitely know what San Jose is. You probably have a favorite menu item. I know that Will and I do. So the community was shocked when Greg Leon was indicted for murder, for the murder of 28-year-old illegal alien Arturo Bravo. Uh, and what motivated this killing? Well, Arturo Bravo seduced Greg Leon's wife, Rachel Leon. Now, that happened in 2016. Seven years later, this case has finally gone to trial. You can attribute him not going to trial for so long to two things. One, he's hired some of the best defense attorneys that money can buy here in South Carolina. And two, COVID gummed up the courts for about two years. So this case is... They were waiting on interpreters, correct? That's another thing, yeah. yeah. And one thing I learned today, I was speaking with the gentlemen who have been there this this whole week, the interpreters. The court actually has to have two interpreters there the whole time in case one of them gets sick or something happens to them because should they not have an interpreter, the whole trial comes to a screeching halt. So, yeah, there was a, there's a couple of reasons why this trial hasn't happened yet, Uh and it surprises a lot of people because a lot of our audience, they've learned about the South Carolina criminal justice system through Alex Murdaugh, who committed murder in uh, 2021 and is in jail in 2023, or I should say in prison, in prison as a convicted murderer in 2023. The reality is in South Carolina, that is the exception, not the rule. Because it was such a high profile case, it definitely was pushed to the front of the docket and received a lot more attention from law enforcement and prosecutors than any normal murder case would. And and you can tell, I mean, this is a fairly high profile case itself and it's just now making it to trial. Yeah. I think with Alex, he requested a speedy trial, which um, is rare for a defendant. Most defendants right. want to remain out on the street for as long as possible. So right. you and very, Leon's very rarely all- see that. Leon is out on bail. Alex was, you know, he was denied bail. So he was sitting in jail. So, I mean, part, I mean, there's a lot of reasons for his request for a speedy trial, but when you're out on bail and living your life as normal, why are you going to, why are you going to rush things? Delay, delay, delay. Yeah, certainly. If, if Jack Swirling doesn't get uh, Greg Leon off on this murder charge, he still got him seven more years of his life in the free world because this trial took so long to happen. And right. that's definitely something that defendants consider when they're facing charges that could potentially put them away for the remainder of their life, as Mr. Leon is here. So once the trial gaveled in, things got interesting. I, I would say the first two days, I could kind of see it, it being a real toss-up. And, and the reason is beyond a reasonable doubt. This is something that we talked a lot about during Alex Murdaugh's trial, that you need to be able to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that it was murder, that it was not manslaughter, because Mr. Leon's not charged with manslaughter, he's charged with murder, which in South Carolina means you kill another person with malice aforethought. That's a legal concept, a legal phrase that we don't hear much in the civilian world in normal conversation, but Think of in it this South way. Carolina, we don't have degrees of murder either. There's no like first degree, second degree, third degree. Murder is murder. Right. 
Exactly. In other states, you might have first degree, second degree, with varying levels of premeditation required. In South Carolina, it's either murder or it's not. And malice aforethought means that at the moment that you stick the knife in, pull the trigger, do whatever you do to murder the person, that you are doing so with malice. And prosecutors have went out of their way to demonstrate malice in a number of different ways. And that's why I say the first couple of days, I think Mr. Leon could have made a very reasonable argument that could have convinced at least a couple of jurors that, look, he didn't know what was going on in the back of this truck. And I wish that I could be playing you the video of Mr. Leon shooting Mr. Bravo right now. However, the court has ruled that that will not be released, perhaps after the trial. Is that sealed? It's not sealed. It's it's just an informal decision made by the judge. Right. So he, I mean, so he, I mean, okay. So he went to the park and ride where his wife, Rachel, was meeting up with her boyfriend, lover, Arturo Bravo. Right. And, and that is when he, they allege he shot him. Okay. Well, they don't allege he shot him. He shot him there. What, what, what is in question is whether he murdered him. He is on videotape shooting Arturo Bravo. He led the police to the gun. He showed up to the police station a couple hours later in the car that he fled the scene in. It is not alleged that he shot Arturo Bravo. Okay. What, is in, what, the, what this trial is resting on, it's, and it's not like the Murdoch trial where the trial was, did he even did pull he the trigger? We right. know he pulled the trigger. The question is, was there malice aforethought? So that, that is kind of what this trial has come down to. And let me explain to you a couple of the ways that the state has tried to develop this theory that there was malice, because obviously they wouldn't be pressing these charges if they didn't think that they could win. Right. So first of all, Rachel Leon and Arturo Bravo were publicly sharing uh, Facebook posts. That's not typically something that people who don't want their, you know, people like, in their life right. to figure out that they're together do. Right. I, um, she also bought Arturo Bravo just a few days before Mr. Leon shot him a $40,000 Toyota Tacoma TRD. That's a nice ride. Which, by the way, my girlfriend, uh, if, if you're listening to this, where's my Toyota Tacoma TRD? That's pretty, that's pretty sweet no treatment. Kidding. And actually, uh-huh. it, it she was so generous to him that Mr. Leon's defense attorney has referred to the victim multiple times as a gigolo in court, which, hey. I haven't heard that word in years. <laughs> you know, if you look at the definition of the word, it definitely applies. It's just an interesting move as a defense attorney to characterize the victim that way. But I suppose that's, that's really, you know, his best shot is basically hoping that a juror doesn't like Arturo Bravo. And Arturo Bravo has had some very interesting, and by interesting I mean bad things, come up about him th- throughout the trial, such as the fact that he, when he was 17, he, he had sex with a 23-year-old. You can think, or sorry, sorry, flip it around. When he was 23, okay. he had sex yeah. with a 17-year-old. So he's not squeaky clean, but he's not on trial. He's dead. Right. So we got the Facebook angle. We got the truck angle. And here's another fact that came out actually on Mr. Swirling's cross-examination, the defense attorney's cross-examination, that on the night of the homicide, Arturo Bravo called Mrs. Leon multiple times while the family was having dinner at the Carabas Italian restaurant right on, on 26 up in Harbison, only a, a couple miles dinner? from where I'm sitting. Yeah, they were so having he, a family dinner. Right. How many times have, has your spouse gotten multiple calls during a family dinner that, that you didn't notice that? And she probably wasn't being discreet about it either. I don't think that discretion was uh, was what she was going for. Right. Also, in the, the t- two days before the shooting, Mr. and Mrs. Leon did not exchange any text messages. So there's this picture put together that I, I don't think it takes a lot of a, a big leap for a juror to not believe Mr. Leon when he says, I, I didn't know what I was going to show up to that night. I didn't know what was happening. And by the way, how did he get there? Oh, a month before the shooting, he paid to have a GPS tracker installed in his wife's Mercedes Benz without her knowledge. Well, that's not a cheap, that's not a cheap expense. Jennifer Wood, of course, you know that. Uh, 
just out of curiosity, how much does that cost? Um, so the GPS trackers typically run, I mean, it depends on how good of one you get. I'm guessing he got a real good one, probably he did. 700 to a thousand. Plus you've got to get the subscription to track it. It's not like you can just track it on your, find your iPhone. No, but it is interesting because we've seen a lot of testimony about the fact that Mr. Bravo checked this GPS. I mean, they have a surveillance video of him on his phone at one of his restaurant locations. He checks the GPS. They have also gotten admitted into evidence app logs showing him opening the app. Then they have video of him running out to his car, speeding down the street, uh, and driving about the 10 minutes between the restaurant location that he was at and the... uh, the parking lot where the shooting occurred. So, so I saw Britt Dove from SLED was on the stand. Was that what he was testifying about? Uh, Britt Dove is a cell phone expert from SLED. We heard him testify at Murdaugh's trial. At That's where trial. some people might might be uh, yeah. familiar with him. He testified, all, if I recall correctly. we all turned off our location services on our phone. Well, actually, I left mine on, but I don't kill people. Um, he testified about Mrs. Leon's phone, I believe, and about some of the social media records. They brought in a separate evidence custodian from Spherion, which is the company that makes the GPS tracker, to uh, testify to that stuff. But we've actually had two separate witnesses bring in cell phone testimony. They waited until today to bring in to evidence Mr. Leon's cell phone contents, which I thought was interesting. I noted yesterday that because they actually entered the cell phone into evidence two days ago. Uh, by the way, we're filming this on Friday after court. Um, they entered into evidence two days ago that the cell phone itself, and, and I wrote in my article that day, the contents will likely come in later. And I think that the prosecutors were being you know, a bit, a bit dramatic in not bringing the contents of the cell phone in front of the jury that day. They wanted to wait for that last impression today. And the prosecutors did rest their case today after the testimony of the um, forensic pathologist who conducted the autopsy. Importantly, she testified that Mr. Bravo was shot in the side, kind of right underneath the arm in the armpit area. And she also testified that his wound patterns indicate that he did not turn around. There were no defensive wounds, um, and there was no stippling on Mr. Bravo, indicating he he likely didn't have time to react. He, He didn't reach for a weapon which, by the way, there was no weapon found in the vehicle. Um, So that was a pretty, pretty brutal last nail. However, this trial is not over. Um, Jack Swirling is one of the best defense attorneys that money can buy here in South Carolina. If anybody can get you off, even given all this stuff that we just talked about here for the last 10 minutes, it's him. So I can't wait to see what he and his team give the jury here i think they're probably going to take about the same amount of time that the prosecution has taken we'll probably have a a verdict here by the end end of next week this time next week we'll hopefully be having a wrap-up conversation about how this trial shook out whether mr swirling was able to bring the goods or not but i'll tell you one thing right now it's not looking great for mr leon did um so did Mr. Swirling, give you any indication how many witnesses he plans to call? So, unlike the Murdaugh trial, when I I don't even know who published the witness list, but everybody in the media had the witness list, the witness list in this trial is airtight. Um, Nobody has it. Okay. And while the attorneys, you know, on both sides, they have no problem talking to the media, they're they're pretty tight-lipped about details as to what their plans are. Do you think that a lot of that's due to the witness tampering that was found in this case? Yeah, and I would be remiss if I didn't talk about that, huh? Yeah, because I, I think that's really interesting. So yesterday, we, we heard all this evidence, you know, that suggests that Leon uh, might have committed premeditated murder, not... Uh, acted in self-defense, which is kind of the angle that his attorneys have been pursuing. We hear all this in the morning. um, And then things get a little bit strange. So after this whole investigation is conducted, the prosecutors 
hear from uh, a woman named Enrique Ruby Sierra. And Miss Sierra is a transgender woman who lived with Arturo Bravo. Uh, But more than just living with Arturo Bravo, Sierra also had a romantic relationship with Bravo. Um, Sierra only speaks Spanish. She took the stand with an interpreter and explained that one of Greg Leon's business associates, who, by the way, other testimony showed that he was connected to on Facebook, that uh, employment records show that he employed, reached out to her and asked her to make up egregious lies about, or not to make up, but to repeat egregious lies about Arturo Bravo um, and to say those to attorneys to help Mr. Leon out legally. Now, the, the I mean, she asked him to say really, really horrendous things like that Arturo Bravo raped her at gunpoint while making her watch child pornography, like that level of terrible. And there were a couple other allegations that were just as bad that she was asking uh, Sierra to make. I'm not sure if the fact that Sierra and um, Bravo were lovers was known to Leon and, and his associate here because when Sierra took the stand, it sure seemed to me like she was out to get Leon. And understandably so. If somebody shot my lover, I, I would not be thrilled. And it's just really funny because this whole thing kind of turned into a crazy love triangle situation. Yeah, well, so I was just going to ask, was that relationship occurring at the same time as Rachel Leon and Arturo Bravo's relationship? So here's the crazy thing. The relationship with Rachel Leon was really causing a rift between Sierra and Bravo to the point that, and actually the, the purchase of the truck seems to be what set both Sierra uh, and, and Greg Leon off. Because Sierra said, I'm leaving you. I'm getting out of here. I'm leaving this house, which is significant because they had lived together for like four years at that point. Right. We're going to meet about this and talk about it on, on Sunday night. Sunday night was Valentine's Day night. Oh, what? He never came home because he was murdered that evening. He was murdered, right. Also likely over that truck. So this Toyota Tundra, maybe it wasn't all it cracked out. Cracked up. Yeah, to maybe, maybe you shouldn't be asking your girlfriend for that. Yeah, no, maybe there's a reason that people buy their own vehicles, huh? Yeah, maybe. but but anyway, to continue here, her lover gets murdered or killed. He's not officially murdered yet. Uh, her lover's killed. She gets reached out to, to provide false testimony on behalf of Mr. Leon, who of course shot her lover. She then goes to the Lexington police, who she knows are investigating this, and discloses this information to them. Now, they're pretty smart. They want to kind of keep separation between that and their investigation of Leon's homicide, so they reach out to SLED. Now, SLED exists. uh, One of their functions is to help law enforcement agencies who might have either a conflict or or they just want to make sure that things are handled at arm's length so that there's no doubt in anybody's mind that things are being handled proprietously. So SLED takes this investigation over, a witness tampering investigation, provides Ruby with a wire, uh, and there's an undercover meeting that happens at the Real Mexican Restaurant on Bush River Road in Columbia, South Carolina, and they don't get into details in the trial as to what exactly was exchanged you know, verbally at this meeting, but they said it was enough for them to continue their investigation. So they don't close the investigation because this initial foray was kind of just to figure out uh, is Sierra full of it or not? And and I guess the sled agents concluded, no, Sierra's not full of it, but they didn't have enough to press charges at the time. So the investigation kind of is, is laying back. And then a couple of months later, this business associate of Leon's reaches out to Sierra again. And Sierra goes to sled and says, look, the person reached out to me again. So they wire her up again. Um, and they end up meeting in, briefly in Eric Bland, you know, the the attorney that who has a big role in the Murdaugh case's office. Bland also represented Mr. Leon um, in other legal matters, and, and Bland was the person that Greg Leon called immediately after the shooting, basically, uh, I would assume, trying to figure out what the heck to do. Right, Although we don't, we don't, we don't know what he said because it was attorney-client privilege, but that, that's what I would be trying to figure out if I just shot somebody. Right. right. 
And by the way, Bland clearly told him to do the right thing because he went a couple hours later and turned himself into the police, although not before he threw the gun in the woods. But a couple days later, he told the police where the gun was. So I, I guess all's well that ends well. Right, but um, they go to Bland's office briefly. They then leave, get, get in their cars, leave, and go over to Dick Carpootlian's office. So, which, by the way, this trial is like... They go from Eric Bland's office to Dick Harpootlian's office. Like, no, we're not making this up. And I promise you there are more than five lawyers in South Carolina. (laughs) They're just all... But if you were to look at our website, you would think that there are about five lawyers in South Carolina. There are solicitors other than David Pascoe and defense attorneys other than Dick Harpootlian, but you wouldn't know it. Anyway, the conversation that occurs in the parking lot of Harpootlian's office. I emphasize parking lot because there were no attorneys present. This was just the, the two parties preparing to go into Harpootlian's office. Was damning. This is this is where um, Leon's associate directly lays out all of these ridiculous lies that um, Sierra is to tell. And I think this is for an affidavit related to the case, although since this uh, this whole incident here created its own set of criminal charges, which will have their own trial. They were kind of reticent to get into details. And I even approached some of the attorneys after the testimony and tried to clarify a couple of things. And they said that they didn't want to get into those those uh, details because that's kind of the territory of the other trial. So, of course, we'll be covering that. Hopefully, I'll be covering that. But uh, stay tuned. But the allegations of the rape... Um, they were all plotted out, and at one point, Greg Leon starts calling his associate, um, and then Greg Leon is heard on the phone having a conversation uh, with his associate and with Ruby. Now, he doesn't get into a ton of damning details, but uh, he doesn't need to. This was still a terrible look for Greg Leon, because we have all the stuff that we talked about before, which is which would probably be enough to secure a conviction alone. And now we have all of this witness tampering stuff. Where he's trying to get somebody to make Arturo Bravo, the victim, look bad. Yeah. Yeah. So, and by the way, it's very funny because you see this whole campaign to to smear Arturo Bravo in the witness tampering arena. You, You see all this evidence of this. And then like 35 seconds later, what's the strategy that his defense is taking? smearing Arturo Bravo. So, you know, this whole line of inquiry into the witness tampering really gutted the defense. Right. It it was, it was rough the last couple of days this, this week for them because it's just hard to recover from that. And I'm I'm not saying they're bad attorneys, but their client didn't do them any favors. Legend. But when you're handed this kind of evidence against your client, it's hard to overcome that. I kind of think of it like if you were to give a a five Michelin star chef, one of the best chefs in the world, a pile of of rotten carrots, uh, they're still not going to make you a great meal. Right. Like you got to give your attorney a a little bit something to work with. And this was a very ham-handed bribery attempt. And by the way, why I say that Sierra was out to get Leon is because she was hamming it up on the tape. She literally goes, but that's a lie. And Leon's associate could be heard laughing on the tape before giving her further instructions to pretend to cry. So, like, she was really doing about as good of a job as a undercover informant as you can. And you could tell when she took that stand that she had been waiting for this day for years. And I think that uh, she'll probably get the result that she wants out of all of her efforts. And it's not like she's some woman of means. I mean, this person illegally immigrated to America uh, more than 10 years ago and has been working in the back of house of restaurants and bakeries since then. That is hard work. So, you know, and to to have somebody who you care about and and love get murdered, it's a terrible thing. So I really did enjoy watching that testimony. But I have to say, just on a personal level, it's been very interesting watching things go downhill for Leon because his whole family is is turning out to support for him. I'm talking his children, his siblings. He's had multiple friends who have been here every day of the trial. Um, 
he's clearly a, a beloved man. He's clearly somebody who's done a lot of right things in his life. He's clearly somebody who's built many successful businesses. But and and I've talked to Mr. Leon. He's not in the custody of the state. So beginning and the end of the day, he's walking out of that courtroom just like I am. But, you know, the facts just aren't looking good for him. Right. But I do have to say, like, I, I really have, uh, you know, I, I went to the Russell Lafitte trial, and I have to say I didn't really enjoy being around the Lafitte's. But Mr. Leon's family, they, they, they seem like good people to me. This is just a very unfortunate situation. Uh, now, I don't know anything about their personal lives. I don't know if Greg Leon is the best or the worst man uh, ever, but I'm, I can just speak to what I've seen this week. But it's a very sad situation uh, for, for really everybody involved. Right. Yeah. I mean, you hate to see marriages get broken up by adultery, and you certainly hate to see violence like this. So whatever the outcome is here, you know, I, I'm going to continue reporting next week, but we'll we'll just have to see what the defense can bring. Right. So the state did rest today after the forensic the forensic yep. testimony. That was their last witness. Yeah. Okay, so now the defense is taking over next week, and we don't have any indication how long that's going to be because they're so tight-lipped about their witness list. Yeah, Maybe I've heard I think... uh, a couple of references to experts, so I know, you know, obviously if you're right. paying to bring in an expert, it's going to it's gonna probably eat a quarter, half a day, but right. I, I don't know exactly who they plan to call. Do you have any idea, like, where do you think that the defense is going to try and steer this while they have, while they have, you know, their opportunity? Well, I can only go with what I've seen to this point. Uh, I think they're going to follow that self-defense possibility. Uh Uh, I think that if I were in that jury box, that would probably, as somebody who also owns a firearm, it's something you think about. You know, if I were if I were on a murder jury of somebody who claims self-defense, I would think long and hard about that, even if there was no weapon found. Because right. in a moment like that, you just don't know. Obviously, right. those jurors are going to have to balance that with premeditation, the possibility of premeditation, because that would eradicate any self-defense. If you arrive at a location looking to kill somebody, it doesn't matter if they respond with a gun. You, you showed up trying to kill them. Right. So I think they're going to go for that self-defense because I've seen them pursue that angle. And I think that they are going to reveal a lot more nasty things about Arturo Bravo. Um, How far that will get them remains to be seen. Right. But they could have an ace in the hole. I don't know. They could. They could. I mean, we've, I mean, they really could. We've seen some, this case has brought some big surprises already. I wouldn't be, it wouldn't shock me if something, they've got something. I was speaking with another attorney today about this case, and they reminded me that Jack Swirling quite literally wrote the book on cross-examinations. I mean, if I messed up, I would hire Jack Swirling. Well, I can't uh, afford Jack Swirling, but if I could, I would. I when when we were talking about you covering this trial, I remember thinking, guys, like I've always he's like the one attorney I've always wanted, like I've always wanted to watch him litigate. He is just. He's fascinating. He's brilliant. He is, he is, yeah, I just think he's a really amazing attorney. I mean, to, to be honest with you, there were cross-examinations where as I was thinking logically about his his arguments, I was like, what? But the way that he asks the questions and the way that he lines the questions up to get the person on the stand to answer the question, the way that he wants it answered is genius the way that he emotionally builds is genius it's and and if a juror is not sitting there like i am guzzling coffee paying attention to every word you know the jurors don't have to go home and write an article about it they just have to make a thumbs up or a thumbs down at the end of the day so so you're whether you were you know extremely logically consistent throughout the trial doesn't matter nearly as much as you might think and but well, I think the Murdoch jury was a, a little more predictable than most. In general, juries are very unpredictable. So I think, I mean, that's that's just something that you always have to keep in mind when a trial's wrapping up and they're handing it over. Oh, I mean, I, I've said some things here that would indicate that I don't, you know, have the, the highest hopes for Mr. Leon here. That being said, it totally would not surprise me if somebody in that jury box said, look, I don't know 
what happened in the back of that truck because the the video of Mr. Leon shooting Mr. Bravo conveniently has his wife's Mercedes parked between the camera and Mr. Bravo's truck, the in, you know, the truck that they were having sex in the back of. So right. if I feel that way, I'm sure that, that somebody on that jury could feel that way, and, and that's what Mr. Leon's hoping for. Yeah. But I'll tell you what, it's not it's not looking very good. I think that um, the, the prosecutors are going to be able to come in and deliver some haymakers in their closing argument because they've been very restrained. And one thing I noticed here was that they haven't made any allegations of premeditation to this point in the trial in front of the jury. However, they were uh, arguing an objection just in front of the judge, and they basically laid it out very nakedly the various elements of premeditation, which which makes me think, okay, they clearly are are doing this intentionally. They're going to tie this up with a neat little bow at the end. So th- right. that could be a real, real haymaker. That's That's fascinating. Oh, it's been a fascinating trial to cover. I've really enjoyed having the opportunity to see Solicitor Rick Hubbard, um, Deputy Solicitor Suzanne Mays. Yeah, I was just going to ask you, so Solicitor Rick Hubbard, uh, has he been heavily involved in examination of the witnesses, or is he letting Assistant Solicitor Mays take the lead? Uh, Hubbard has definitely been hands-on. I would love to give some credit to Deputy Solicitor Mays. She is like the archetypal prosecutor. She's extremely measured. Every syllable that comes out of her mouth, you could tell that it is just like perfectly polished. She's never in the wrong place in the courtroom. She's never fumbling with the technology. She always knows exactly what she wants to ask her witness. She's extremely logically consistent. Right. She's just a skilled prosecutor. I mean, she's the kind of person that if I were facing criminal charges would – scare me to death and I overheard Solicitor Hubbard telling another attorney when I try a case with Suzanne she always shows up with everything perfectly prepared and that didn't surprise me to hear that Right. Um, just having watched this trial she is a consummate professional that mm-hmm. that is for sure Solicitor Hubbard also has been putting in the work I mean he's clearly a very skilled trial attorney yeah his his choices thus far have been extremely intelligent as far as when to apply force or you know when to dig in and and right. when to sit back which i think is a really appropriate thing because or a really important thing because jurors don't want to see you uh laying it on thick all the time now, and i think that he has a really good balance will and i've discussed solicitor hubbard and he said that he's known for his opening and closing arguments. Um, apparently, like, I've not seen Solicitor Hubbard in action, but apparently, those like, he's one of those guys that just, like, like I'm trying to think of um, the Murdoch trial, the um, closing argument. John Metters. Yes. Like, yeah. Ursh, like, can just, like, bring, bring the room to their knees with their closing so Deputy Solicitor Mays gave the opening argument. I haven't heard indication as to who's going okay. to close. I think she could do a great job just from what I've seen here. Yeah. I think Hubbard would also do a great job. Yeah. Um, I'll be very interested for closing arguments because opening arguments did a great job of laying the groundwork for, for what was to come. It allowed me to make some uh, predictions that turned out to be correct as right. far as the road things were going to go down, uh, you know, just by – paying very close attention to what they are saying. So uh, I I can't wait to hear how they bring it home. Yeah, I can't either. I'm very interested. Your stories on this have been great. Thank you. Just trying to do my best when Will's out of town here. (laughs) Trying to keep the ship from sinking. (laughs) Hopefully he's putting some sunscreen on his dome out there. Oh. (laughs) Well, based on the amount of hats I saw on his dresser, I think he's got his dome covered. You think he's okay? I think you might be fine. All right, Jennifer, my turn to ask the questions. So you've been doing a long, I think at this point, multi-month investigation into South Carolina's probate court systems. I think we should start about 30 years ago with um, Dennis Lloyd and, and Marvin Lawson. You want to tell us a little bit about who they are? 
Yeah. So yeah, this is definitely not going to be a story that goes away anytime soon. I was talking to a couple of probate fraud experts and they said, you know, this, this is one of those stories that's going to, you know, keep, keep going for years while you, you know, follow the threads and pull everything apart. But one of the first things that, um, when I did my first story on the Hannah family and the judge Marvin Lawson in Darlington, who had handled their um their parents estate after it got transferred out of florence county i kind of thought to myself i wonder how you know let's look at marvin lawson's judge marvin lawson's background and see where he came from and i realized he had been appointed to the bench um following um, the death of the former probate judge in the early to mid 90s dennis lloyd who died, I don't know how he died. I, I don't know if it was suicide, if he died in natural causes, but after his death, they found a number of um, estates that were questionable and dealings that were, you know... I think cumulatively it was $841 million in assets that were misappropriated, according to your reporting. Correct. So, you know, when Marvin Lawson was you know, sworn in to replace him, he, you know, there's articles out there where he's quoted as saying, you know, I need to, I know I need to rebuild the community's trust. Um, I mean, it was, it was a big focus of his. And, you know, at the same time that the Marvin Lawson or the Dennis Lloyd scandal was unraveling, um, the Dorchester County probate judge, Shelton Parker, it was a much larger scandal where he was indicted federally for, for, a state fraud with um, estates that he was handling. Um, he ended up pleading guilty in federal court. But, you know, at that time, back in, you know, 19, it was between 1993 and 1995 when, when, the, um, when the allegations were made, he pled guilty and um, subsequently allegedly commit, committed suicide in federal prison. You know, there was a lot of talk about reform of the probate court. You know, it was like the big, big subtopic of conversation. People were talking about what what needed to be done to prevent this from happening again. And I, you know, I was kind of going through trying to see, you know, what has happened to, since since that. Have they made any changes? They have not made any substantive changes to probate law that I can tell. We should back so, it up. I just realized we didn't even talk about what probate is. I, I think our audience is a pretty educated group. Yeah. But in case you, you're fortunate enough to not have been through this process yet, when somebody dies, um, their estate, all their assets are Correct. put through what's called the probate process. That's where hopefully, legally, uh, this court system takes care of appropriately distributing your assets to whoever you list in your will, paying back debts, yeah. you know, all that liquidation process. Um but the unfortunate thing is that there's a lot of assets there, and if there are people who are not motivated uh, by uh, honestly, th there's a lot of room for fraud. Right. There's a lot of room for fraud. Um, and it, it also, um, in addition to, you know, you know, estates of people who passed away, also estates of minors go through probate court. So if a minor needs a guardian to handle their estate or a conservator to handle their estate goes through probate court. Mental health hearings go through probate court. You get your more marriage license at probate court. So most of us, if not all of us, end up in probate court at some point and a good chunk of money goes through there. I think um, last estimate was per year, $1.5 to $2.5 trillion a year go through probate court. And I read um, one report, I can't remember where it was from, that more money is um, stolen through probate court every year than is sold in drugs by cartels. And the drugs that are sold by cartels are pretty valuable. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it is, there is, there's much room for fraud. Uh, if but, you know, there. the good thing is in South Carolina, we obviously we know we have some shifty attorneys hanging out here. So our state makes sure that we have people who are qualified to be judges watching over these attorneys, people who are experts in the law, who can watch over these attorneys with a hawk's eye. Right, Jennifer? 
No. So uh, there are a number of wonderful probate court or probate judges in South Carolina. I'm not saying all probate judges are, are bad. A lot of them do have law degrees, but it is not required by law in South Carolina for a probate judge to have a law degree. So the only requirement is that you have a bachelor degree. And if you don't have a bachelor degree, you need four years of experience within the probate court system. Now, bigger counties like Richland, Lexington, Charleston, they typically have a probate judge who has a law degree, but a lot of these smaller counties do not. So um, it, it's, I mean, it is a complicated section of our code of laws. And a lot of the people that are making rulings on, on, on in probate court and managing these assets for people do not have a law degree, which I think is fascinating. Yeah, I mean, you know, as much as I just laid it on thick right there, I, I can't say that as a layperson, it, you you obviously, if you apply yourself and study, you can certainly attain a knowledge of the law that w would allow you to operate effectively. It, it's just surprising that you can be a judge but not a lawyer. Right. And probate judges are the only judges in South Carolina that are po elected popularly as well. I should point that out. But so, I mean, in the 90s, when all these scandals were happening, um, there were there were calls for comprehensive overhauls of probate court system in South Carolina. And like they there were, you know, people responding. And Lewis Rosen, who's the director of the Office of Court Administration at the time, said that he believed the problems did not appear to be widespread and that the Supreme Court, they were actually hesitant when it came to reprimanding probate judges. And this, this I thought was really interesting. It was because probate court judges are elected independently and are not required to have law degrees. So when a probate judge was reprimanded in 1990, the Chief Justice George T. Gregory Jr., he admitted his reluctance to impose a harsh sentence because he said, quote, the court was reluctant to hold people without formal legal education to the same standard as those who have studied the law, end quote, which I, I was like, what? I, it, uh, that is certainly strange. I mean, if there's going to be trillions of dollars of assets passing through now, right. of course, not in South Carolina, because this is you know, for the whole country. But if there's going to be significant amounts of money passing through these courts every year, certainly there should be safeguards in place. And certainly those who are, are overseeing this, sometimes these probate judges, depends on the county, but there can be tens of millions of dollars of assets under their supervision at a time. Right. And they're, I mean, when they take, when, when they're elected in, they are required to take a uh, course. I think it was like a five-day course on probate law. And they have the option of taking that every year, but that is pretty much the only requirement that they have. Now, I did read that audits of the court, the probate court system, are they happen periodically, but I have yet to find any proof of an audit or any audit results from a probate court in South Carolina. So, if who the conducts are these audits? Are they done by like uh, accounting firms? Are they done by a governmental agency, or or is it just something that theoretically very happens vague. that we can't find any evidence of actually happening? Very vague, exactly. Which I think is it's crazy, and we saw you know we did see some glimpses of probate court um, shenanigans in the Murdoch case with the Plyler sisters. Um, so it, for those not familiar with it, the Plyler sisters were in, um, Hannah and Elena were in a car accident 17 years ago with their mother and brother who were, were killed in the car accident on I-95 in South Carolina. Alex Murdoch handled their lawsuit. I believe it was against fire, Firestone because it was a tire tread separation accident, which he won significant amounts of money for the sisters. But the father, for reasons unknown, was just not able to be conservator for the girls once they received their settlement. So they appointed Russell Lafitte, former CEO of Palmetto State Bank, to be the conservator for the girls through Hampton County Probate Court. 
So there are two problems with that. Um, first of all, uh, the girls didn't even live in Hampton County. So if there is an estate going through a court, it has to go through their county of residence. They were living and in, I believe, Richland County at the time. Richland or Lexington, I believe. Somewhere here in the Midlands. Right. So the, the, the estate never should have been in Hampton County Court. And the other problem was, is they were during, well, Russell Lafitte was conservator. He was making loans to himself and Alex Murdoch from their account funds. And the probate judge signed off on all of the, all of those things. So that was a big part of Russell Lafitte's federal con- conviction. It was very interesting. I covered that trial, and during the testimony, multiple times, uh, Lafitte's attorneys would say, well, the probate judge signed off on this. The probate right. judge signed off on this. Well, l- let's think about it. The probate judge is probably an old chum of Ellick and, and uh, you know, the, the PMPED crowd. The probate How judge much are they going to be looking at that? Right. The probate judge at the time was Sheila Odom. She recently retired and has been, um, another judge has been elected to take her place. And in her deposition regarding the Plyler's case, she admitted that she relied on the attorneys who are filing things in her court to tell her if things were okay to sign off on. So she's relying on Alex or was relying on Alex to sign off on these things. And Alex is like, Heck yeah, sign off on it. I want my loan from these girls' accounts. I mean, it's absolutely insane. And that's what, I think that's what happens when you do have somebody in that position who does not have a law degree. They re- rely on the attorneys bringing stuff into their courts to tell them if, you know, things are okay. They they And she admitted to that in a deposition. Yeah, no, you're certainly not making baseless allegations here. Do you think that this time we might actually see some change? Because the last time there was a push was the 90s. You're, you're God bless you, giving it another good push right now. I'm trying. What, what, do you have any proposals? Because I know that, you know, it's easy to point out problems and it takes a lot of work to come up with proposed solutions. So I don't want to put you on the spot here before you have a chance to formulate your ideas. But what have you kind of been thinking? Obviously... It seems strange that you don't have to be a lawyer. Now, I can understand South Carolina is a very rural state, and there are a lot of counties where there probably ain't a lawyer in the county. Exactly. But uh, clearly there needs to be audits, some sort of competency. I, I don't know exactly what the solution is because I haven't dug into this problem to the same level that you have, but I'd love to hear if you have something you want to share now on that. So we have been talking with um, individuals who are heavily involved with uh, reform within the probate system. And one of those individuals is Rick Black, who's from the Center for Elder Abuse Reform. And he is going to be working with us to take a look at, you know, things that they believe could be common sense solutions to help prevent fraud within the probate court. So he's agreed to do a guest article that will be coming out soon. And then I've also been working with um, some financial fraud experts and looking at some of these um, individuals to kind of try and figure out like, okay, so is, is this normal? Is this legitimate? You know, sometimes you're looking at, you're, you're looking at a property transfer and you're like, well, this doesn't seem exactly right. And you'll have somebody with financial background and they'll say, actually, that that one looks normal, but that one does not. Um, so, yeah, I mean, like I've always thought within the Murdoch case, a, a lot of a lot of where the money went, I think, can be explained in the register of deeds, which is where property transfers and mortgages and um, power of attorneys are filed. And I believe the same thing with probate court. I think a lot of those things are within the register of deeds. Which is good because it means that a super sleuth like yourself can get those records and, uh, you know, through many sleepless nights and uh, paranoid delusions, eventually put it all together. <laughs> One day. But yeah, I mean, this is something that is, it will be, it will be a project that I will be continuing to work on because, you know, as as we know, the baby boomer generation, which is getting into that, you know, it, it was a large sure. generation and their their states are going to probate and they are needing um, personal representatives due to health issues. 
Um, that population is huge and enormous, and it's going to continue to balloon balloon for the next decade or so. Um, and it's something I mean, we're only going to see these assets going through probate court increase because these individuals have a vast amount of generational wealth. Um, I mean, right now I, I had a conversation with my parents. I said, you, you need to make sure you have a trust set up. And I, I think everybody should talk to a reputable uh, estate attorney and make sure that their assets are protected from probate court. Yeah, you certainly should if, if you are getting up there in years. Right. Make sure that your family isn't going to get screwed over after you die by some shady attorney. Develop a relationship with an right. attorney that you actually can trust uh, while you're still on this side of the grass. Um, <laughs> and we're going to do as much as we can here, Jennifer, of course, leading the fight, to hopefully make South Carolina a state where this stuff isn't rampant. But that's going to be a fight that's going to take time. So until then, you're going to have to watch out for yourself. <laughs> but we are going to start working on some educational um, pieces as well, kind of, you know, basic. I mean, I, I knew nothing about probate law and estate law until I started covering it. And I've learned quite a bit. And I like I, I when I'm covering a topic this uh, this complicated, I like to try to break it down for audience and to help them understand what they need to do to protect themselves, what they you know, things they should watch out for. And we will be doing some of that soon. Well, that's awesome. I can't wait to see where you take this story. Thank you for putting the time and effort into it. I wish that the people watching this could could know how much you put into researching this stuff, but it's a lot and it's it's important and it's a great service to the people who live in this state. So thank you for what you do. Y'all, that's all we got for you this week. We'll be back next week. Uh, can't wait to give you the Greg Leon yeah, update. Yeah, I can't wait either. And we'll have some more great stories for you. We were planning on getting a third in here, but... We're running a little bit long on time, if you haven't noticed. Yeah. yeah, I'll try and do a I'll try and do a solo video on that, so maybe we can pop something on the YouTube next week. Awesome, I look forward to it. Thank you, thank you everybody for watching, Jennifer. Thanks for keeping me company. We got one more week of the Jennifer and Dylan show, and then it will be back to Will, y'all. Thank God. <laughs> Have a great weekend, everybody. Bye.